Hello, and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a brilliantly sunny day in the capital. Let's enjoy it while it lasts. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Matt Williams, principal of the Chelsea Academy. Matt, hello. Hi there, good morning. Good morning. I must say compliment you on your name. It's very stately. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. We probably should uh, dive straight into uh, the big questions here. What is your personal leadership style? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, it depends which one of those uh, leadership quizzes you, you, you read, I suppose. I've done so many over, over my career. Um, I suppose in terms of style and how I try and lead, I'm quite collaborative in terms of how I lead. Uh, my school, I like to take the opinions of other people on board before making a decision. Um, but I suppose having said that, all leaders have to make difficult decisions now and again. And sometimes you have to make those decisions uh, when other people don't necessarily agree with them. But normally my style will be to talk and to listen to people and then to, to make a decision based on that evidence in front of me. Now, uh, how do you go about making those difficult decisions? Do you have a particular rubric that you use? No, not really. Um, I, I, you know, I've done leadership training a, a across my career, and I know there's, there's different ways of sort of making those decisions and, and, and managing change. I suppose for me, being a school leader, the most important thing is looking at the impact of my decisions on, on my clients, which are the young people, and making sure that they get the success that they need. And so I suppose my my style, my thought when making difficult decisions is about how will it impact the young people? Will it make them happy in school? Will it make them successful in the future? Will it give them the exam results that they need to access university or to go on to employment? Um, and and th those are the things that I keep in the back of my mind. And as long as I can sort of tick off mentally, yes, this is going to benefit the students, then those, those difficult decisions are slightly easier to make. Now, uh, you mentioned students as a unique position as a leader in a school setting. You not only have to worry about uh, your own staff, but you have uh, a lot of students to handle. You have uh, quite a lot on your plate. Uh, are there any particular challenges revolving around that? Um, I, I think uh, working with people and leading people is always difficult, isn't it? And I suppose teenagers, um, you know, my school has 1,100 students and, you know, most of them, the majority of them are, are going through puberty or, or the other side of it. And um, so, which means that they're always going to be, there's always going to be emotions and schools can be quite emotional places. And I suppose um, as a leader, it's about keeping it calm. It's about keeping things simple. Um, and it's about working with those young people um, to make sure that they're, they're as successful as, as they possibly can be. And how do you handle these pubescent uh, emotional uh, crises? Uh, because I'm sure that a lot of them are things that us adults wouldn't really take all that seriously, but they, they mean the world to these children at that point in time. What is your process on that? I think, first of all, as a leader, it's about making sure that the environment is safe and happy and calm. I think we all function best when we're in a, a calm environment. And so making sure sort of just the basics are in place so that there's a, there's a strict behavior policy um, in place so the students that are, are causing disorder um, uh, can be dealt with firmly, fairly and quickly. Um, and I think if you get that in, that in place um, and, and have that environment that's conducive to learning and, and that's calm and isn't, you know, not too many stimuli going all over the place, um, then it keeps students 
uh, the majority of the students calm, well behaved and happy. And then it's, it's working with the adults in the building and thinking about consistency and making sure that whatever actions are taken by adults in the building, they're consistent and they're fair. Because uh, teenagers, as we all know, um, know what's right and wrong and they know systems. And so getting that consistency correct is really, really important in a in a secondary school. I think then also um, motivating the students and making sure that lessons are enjoyable and as a leader making sure that you know a lot of our funding goes on supporting high quality lessons so that the students are not necessarily entertained but at least they're stimulated. And then I suppose the final thing is, you know, all, all teenagers are going to have bad days some days and making sure that you've got wraparound support in place for them so that if there is a difficult thing happening in their life, you've got the right people to support. Be that, you know, uh, a bereavement in the family and them needing someone just quickly to, to talk to or some counselling over a period of time, going right up to sort of mental health, child protection, safeguarding issues when you need to have specialists um, on hand to be able to support the young people. Now, you touched on the fact that it, you have to have different structures in place for the students and staff. How different is it leading your staff as as uh, opposed to your students? Um, I think it, it, I think it's pretty similar, actually, in terms of people need to know what they need to do and where they're going. Um, and I think with staff, it's about making sure that they buy in with the values of you as a leader and the values of the organization. And if you can, through recruitment, get the right staff on board and get the, 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 the right adults in the building um, and, and have them bought into that vision, um, then it makes your life much easier. And then it's making sure that you, you have professional development opportunities for them um, so that they can be developed in, in the role. I think we all, whatever um, organization we work in, want to be developed and get better. And so it's about providing professional development. And at Chelsea, we have a number of different pathways for, for, for staff to follow. Uh, we have professional development um, each week. And so it's, it's, it's giving those staff members those opportunities. And then I suppose with, with the students, it's also motivating them and giving them the opportunities, but, you know, slightly different ones, I suppose, for the, the students is about opening their eyes up to the world around them and making sure that they understand the world around them. Obviously, uh, teachers are usually seen as mentors by their students, uh, but you touched on your professional development. Do you have a mentorship scheme for uh, younger teachers uh, looking to progress in their careers within education? Um, we, we, we do both formally and informally. I think the great thing about teaching is there's always someone that's there to be able to talk to you and to support you and, and, and to develop. I suppose when, when teachers start to go further up, uh, the scale, we start to use um, the, the national professional qualifications, which are um, sort of government schemes that, that, that have mentoring as, as part of that. Um, and I personally benefited from um, a scheme called Future Leaders uh, a number of years ago, which was about getting young leaders into, into the, the leadership of, of challenging urban schools. And to that, there was much mentoring made uh, available to me. And I've tried as a principal to try and pay that back in terms of making sure that there are people that will come in and work with, with staff. So I employ um, education consultants to, to come in um, on, a, on a termly basis. And as part of those days, um, they will work with certain members of staff and help them develop them. And I think now in education, with the, the changes in the new Ofsted framework, there's much focus, there's much more focus on middle leaders. And um, we need to make sure as senior leaders that we support and develop them. So, uh, for example, in, in my school, we have people coming in at the moment working with them um, on, on getting their confidence ready to, to be able to lead such important uh, in, inspections around the school. 
Now, when you were starting out in education, did you have a mentor and how did they impact the way that you lead today? Um, I, I didn't have a mentor, actually. I went into teaching because I really um, respected one of my own teachers and um, the way that he treated students in the classroom and the way that he used to make us laugh, but we always used to be successful as well. And I thought, oh, you know, that that would be quite interesting. Um, both of my parents are teachers, so initially I swore that I would never be a teacher. I think <laughs> most teachers say that. Um, but uh, but actually, I, I did some work experience in my dad's school and absolutely loved it, um, And then uh, and then went into... Um, into education. And the great thing about education is you can look around and see so many different people um, doing it differently to you. And you can sort of take the bits that you like um, and, and, and use those role models. And then, as I say, as I, as I started to progress through my career, um, sort, of, uh, sort of midway through my career when I joined Future Leaders, there were some really important mentors that helped and guided and refined how to be a leader, how you how you deal with students, talked about sort of the moral framework behind education. You know, you see in the news all these stories about rolling and other games that people are playing, and that's just completely alien to me. You know, teaching is about helping every child, no matter what their background is, and putting support and intervention in place to make sure that they're successful. And that, that's sort of been drilled into me from an early age as a leader, and I've tried to, to do that in my school and drill that into my staff as well. You know, we're here to help all children. Um, we're not here to play games, to off-roll, to, to, to do city qualifications to get us up, up the league table. Unfortunately, our time is very quickly drawing to a close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for the Chelsea Academy? The next 12 months are very interesting for the Chelsea Academy. I'm actually leaving. I'm relocating overseas. And so I have a, a new headship in, in Switzerland that I'm taking over. And so I suppose for the Chelsea Academy, it's going to be going through um, change under new leadership. I think certainly it's in a very, very strong position to go forward. It's a very settled, stable school that's, that's producing just excellent results at the moment. And so I think it's about maintaining that. Um, and then a new person coming in and, and, and making changes um, that they feel is going to take it forward for the next 10 years. We've just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. And I think under, under a new leader um, with the foundations that I've put in place, I think it will go from strength to strength. Well, Matt, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you, and we definitely have to have you back on once you're settled in Switzerland to hear how things are going there. Um, thank you again for joining us on this conversation on leadership. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. That was Matt Williams, principal of the Chelsea Academy. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure, but uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure your delight that a certain someone is leaving a post, what are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the... Party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than 
trying to replicate a failed past and she can reach out to people that others can't. So I'm I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able and presents extremely well and I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from... Uh, for uh, candidates a little further left um, than them who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the, the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I could think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in. But how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over-65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, light, lighting a candle inside them 
uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to... Uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Uh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term... Uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to, given your answer, David to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister... And I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions. And anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, 
football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone <laughs> knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good about of you. Sheffield United in the Premier League, because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City, then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in... January and then you can lose and then five you nil lose five nil at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by by half time. What, what would a manager blanket say in the situation? I I would have asked myself a very simple question: What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive an incentive to take hold of the game what what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you could answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah, well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle, not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world. You can pronounce on what you're going to do, but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it, if they're just toadies, by the way, and there is a tendency, a new mm. prime minister, large majority, got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them, but get able people in. I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief that you believe in it and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for, a, for a, a, an easy morning television programme, 
get out of the business. You know, don't don't do without it. a doubt. Yeah, uh, that's and also I should add that is how uh, these all stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always try to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Casson especially is that um, it takes and talks to people again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities or you're driving a business that actually says this is why I get up in the morning so you've got to have something internal to yourself the the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better you you can take pride without being egotistical there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better and that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about, and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors, and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they... they it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics. You, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us it turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognize, which is why being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind. That, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour Leadership Contest? How will the next 
few months go for the government after Brexit, uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in, indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020... Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019 uh, and that that's got to be Lisa Nandi or, or Kia on on the, um, the the next few months I think that the government will probably do quite well I I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my f family and loved ones, is football and, and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off, but I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blanket, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.